0: listening to assurance in action. Uh, This is the podcast of your total quality assurance provider Intertech. Uh, Today, our episode will be covering uh, supply chain assurance. Uh, This episode covers the months of July and August. Um, Today, I have with me Jenna Pierce and Astrid Wallstra. Uh, They're both part of Intertech's business assurance supply chain management group. And uh, Jenna and Astrid, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, sure. Um, So I'm Astrid. I'm an account manager at Intertech. Um, I look after some of Intertech's most strategic key accounts. Um, I've been working in the industry for uh, just over ten years, actually, already. Um, and uh, as you may hear from my accent, I was previously based in Europe. I uh, I worked from our, our London office and uh, relocated to the U.S. Um, about five years ago. And uh, yeah, really enjoy working in the in the global team and interacting with many people from many different countries. Um, yeah, so thank you for having me on this podcast. <sighs>
2: Hey, great! Um, and I'm uh, Jenna, and I'm a, S- a senior manager with the uh, Business Assurance Innovation Team. And I'm basically responsible for uh, kind of advisory services related to social compliance for um, our supplier management clients. Just working on new products and services. And um, I'm actually based out of Texas, and um, and uh, we're all at home these days. But uh, um, you know, we're excited to be able to to still do. Uh, you know, interesting work like, like this and, and, and uh, have a podcast. So, I uh, you know, just kind of kick things off, you know, after having you know, read through, you know, this month's offering of uh, interesting articles. There are um, a few which are ripe for discussion these days, you know, with the wave of the coronavirus, coronavirus pandemic, you know, still going strong, you know, especially here in the United States and uh, the worldwide cases are, you know, already surpassing like 20 million. So the article that kind of stood out most for Astrid and myself um, to kind of talk about on today's podcast was the, uh, the one up on the Washington Post about Tyson. It was entitled The World's Second Largest Processor and Marketer of Chicken, Beef and Pork Adopted Weekly um, Coronavirus Testing. And, you know, just the meatpacking you know, industry, that's I mean, one of the hardest ones hit by this pandemic, you know. Um, at least 93 workers have died, and more than 16,000 have been either exposed to or infected by the virus, and that's according to the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. You know, and for food manufacturing companies, you know, working from home is just simply not an option. And the COVID, you know, COVID-19 has really put food supply chains under incredible stress, and consumers are seeing, um, you know, shortages, especially in the meat industry. And, you know, and this hits quite close to home to me as well as a consumer, you know, at my local grocery store. You know, for example, that limits me to kind of like two packages of minced peat whenever I whenever I visit. So. I want to go back over to you, Astrid, and kind of tell us why that the meat and poultry processing plants, why they've been so heavily impacted.
1: Thank you, Jenna. Yeah, that's that's a very great uh, great question that you're asking. And uh, actually, there, there are many factors that uh, lead to an easy transmission of the COVID virus, especially at these processing plants. Um, so one of the most critical factors is probably the distance between the workers. Um, they are really shoulder to shoulder on the uh, processing lines um, at these processing plants. Um, and so, um, yeah, they're very, very, uh, not very good for uh, the spread of infection. Um, And then if you think about some of the activities uh, that are going on on these processing plants, um, such as the workers doing a lot of physical lifting or moving items, um, and that may result in them uh, breathing quite heavily, um, which uh, again, not a good thing when you're trying to control these these droplets um, going out from the workers. Um, There's also a lot of noisy machinery. um, So people are required to to talk more loudly or maybe even shout, uh, which again, does not help. And then if you think about the areas um, on the, uh, uh, at the processing plant, a lot of them uh, will be uh, cold and refrigerating, which is um, a good area for the uh, virus to... Um, live in extra long Um, so that also doesn't help Um, and then um, the workers are not only very close to each other while they're doing their job and the processing lines even when they're taking breaks they will still all be together Uh, they may clock in and clock out at the same time so again there, there are these gatherings of workers they're together in the locker and the changing rooms um And um, another factor is uh, the duration of contact. So uh, workers at these processing plants, they make really long shifts. Uh, The shifts can be 10 to 12 hours. And all this time, these workers, they're just like, very close to each other. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, does, that doesn't that does help. <laughs> um, and then there are even further factors, um, if you think when their workday is, is over. Um, at these processing plants, there are um, a lot of, of migrant workers that uh, may travel uh, to uh, shared housing uh, together in, uh, in in shared vehicles as well. Uh, they may use carpools or they may use um, even buses, maybe belonging to the uh, to the plants. Um, so again, very very much on top of each other. And uh, even when they go into the community, um, they may still um, travel in groups together. They know each other from the plant. Maybe they're friends. They speak the same language. Um, so again, they stay together a lot. Um, so all these factors together just makes them very uh, susceptible for um, for these COVID outbreaks.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, things that companies can do to kind of help, you know, to prevent spread, you know, and there are, you know, those standard practices, you know, like mandated face masks or having like the physical, like plexiglass barrier in between the the workstations and then your you know, well known social distancing of trying to separate workers, you know, you know, six months, you know, trying to shooting for six feet, but not exactly easy sometimes in these in these uh, layouts of these factories. Um, and of course your daily temperature checks and then old you know, hand sanitizing and then just, you know, surface cleaning as much as they can. But, uh, you know, those outbreaks at, at these uh, meat uh, packing manufacturing sites have shown that those kind of standard practices not always sufficient. So what did the uh, What did the article say about the measurements Tyson was taking to keep its facilities open and running?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, it's really interesting. So they've um, just launched a weekly onsite coronavirus testing for employees at all of their 140 uh, U.S. production facilities. It makes them one of the first major American employers to commit to such a regular and expensive testing of its workforce. Um, and what I actually found was really interesting is is the way they they went about to uh, the sample size of of this testing um, and how they roll it out. So they have a monitoring system that uses algorithms uh, to select employees uh, without symptoms for testing um, but this number will even be adapted each week so they look at uh, how many positive cases turned up at the plant uh, each each week um, as well as uh, how many cases there are in the surrounding community and so they will adapt this this uh, I guess the sample size according to uh, according to these numbers um, and uh, further than doing this they also do the uh, daily health screenings. Uh, As employees they they go into the work sites and and the employees that have COVID-19 systems will also um, get a coronavirus test um, and also those employees who have been into close contact with those who have COVID-19 symptoms or those uh, who have tested uh, positive in the past uh, will also be tested. Um, and further than this, to actually support this whole rollout, um, Tyson will also grow their health services team by 50%, um, which results in them having nearly 200 nurses and uh, administrative employees um, as part of their team to really oversee the on-site testing um, and the treatment of the workers who contract the virus. Um, And um, so early in the year, they had actually already uh, rolled out some of those uh, measurements that that you mentioned before, Jenna, uh, but they really feel that by adding uh, this coronavirus testing uh, into the mix that um, it's enough to stay ahead of the virus. Um, Yeah, We we, we hope so too. Um, But their approach has been very well received. Um, So a lot of Tyson's workers, they are part of the Food Workers Union, and they really uh, applauded uh, Tyson for their efforts uh, and they hope that many others in the industry will actually follow their lead and take similar steps. Um, and also uh, if, if it's if it is uh, en- enough what they're doing uh, I, I saw an article where they actually spoke to um, a senior scholar at the John Hopkins Center for Health security and they also asked uh, this this woman for feedback uh, on, on how she felt that um, that this would work for, for Tyson and, and she thinks it's really a, a step in the right direction and uh, yeah potentially a very good approach um, but she, she pointed out a very good um Uh, things she said, what's really missing from this great plan is actually what happens to the workers when they do get uh, a positive result for COVID-19. And she was really curious to their uh, contingency plan because it wasn't mentioned in the uh, in the press release of Tyson. Um, But further follow up revealed that uh, Tyson will also pay all their workers that uh, will have to go home after they've been tested positive with um, short term disability pay. Um, And they really can only go back uh, if they have if they fit into all the criteria that um, the CDC uh, has established together with um, yeah with, with uh, Tyson as well only then they can go come back to um, to work so um, yeah it sounds like they have a lot going on and um, yeah doing the best to stay ahead of the virus so um, yeah very very exciting to hear all these steps they're taking yeah
2: it is a lot and to do that across 140 facilities that's a lot to implement yeah. that kind of testing and protocols. You know, there are other companies kind of taking similar strides trying to go above and beyond uh, there are other meat packing companies like smithfield foods and they are responsible for the bulk of the u.s pork production here in the u.s and and they've also implemented aggressive measures to protect their workers as well and that includes some free testing and then some other companies mentioned in that post article include uh, walmart kroger and amazon and all of them are either exploring or piloting the idea of COVID checks for all um, what 1.5 million frontline or warehouse workers. So that's a lot. And one fact that really stood out to me in the article was that it said that Amazon will spend up to $1.5 billion on employee testing just this year. And that number is just, you know, mind blowing, um, The you know, the, the cost that's associated with this. And so many of our, you know, customers—they're not sitting on that kind of cash fund reserves of the scale of an of an Amazon, um, you know—and they are finding all of this very overwhelming, you know. And they have been coming to us seeking advisement on COVID prevention strategies. And so under InterTech's uh, ProTech offering, you know, we have developed a protocol for manufacturing facilities that follow um, POSI, which is the Prevention of the Spread of Infection protocol. That's right, P-O-S-I. And um, those POSI protocols, they're not new. You know, but They've been in place for many years. And, um, But of course, now they're at the forefront to, You know, as companies are struggling with rolling out an employee kind of a safety program quickly and efficiently. So Intertext POSI Check for Manufacturing kind of helps companies to implement those processes and those systems for prevention and testing and and, and also just isolation of individuals. Um, And we can do the training of employees to help to know what they need to do, what kind of correct actions they need to take. Um, And then uh, where relevant, we also have a third-party verified checkmark. And so that is a great um, use for an external kind of assurance, especially if, you know, for our consumer-facing customers. And then we also partner with a company called Phylogen. And they have some really interesting technology to detect the presence of pathogens that are behind the COVID-19 uh, for indoor environments. So you can use one of their test kits to swab like up to 25 surfaces around your work area and you can send it off to their laboratories and they are going to test that for traces of the pathogen and you'll get results back in like 24 hours. And so we have been partnering with them and taking these swabs on companies' behalf when we're out. Um, so it's just another kind of great a medication tool that companies can use to just kind of get ahead and, and, and prevent any type of outbreaks, you know, you know, to avoid just, you know, the shutdown of your facility, which is always um, something that companies want to avoid.
1: Thank you, thank you, Diana. That's uh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, uh, maybe uh, we can talk about another big concern that was highlighted in uh, in this newsletter, um, which is um, around the shortage of personal protective equipment, uh, also known as PPE. I'm sure, um, yeah, everyone has, has seen a lot of news around this uh, for the last uh, yeah few months. Um, in this newsletter, there is an article that. Um, goes really in-depth on this topic. It's titled, America's PPE shortage uh, could last years without strategic plans, expert warn. Um, So maybe I can talk a little bit about um, what is written in this article. And um, they uh, write that uh, for the last two decades uh, personal protective equipment uh, was supplied to healthcare institutions in in very lean supply chains um, in the same way as as toilet paper was to grocery stores. Um, And chains between the major manufacturers and the end users were just so efficient there was really no need to stockpile goods. Um, But then in March, everything changed, Uh, the supply chain broke. Uh, So some major Asian PPE exporters, they decided... um, do not export at that time. They have they have their own issues in China where it all started, And um, so they did not um, export so much um, and some didn't at all. Um, and just at the moment when uh, there was an increased demand on our side um, because of, I guess, the, the COVID-19 outbreaks. Um, but also another factor uh, because at first it was just hospitals and, and long-term care homes that needed all this PPE. Uh, but from March, uh, the situation changed and actually a lot more people in the society needed it. Nearly everyone, first responders, schools, clinics and even food businesses, they all needed the medical equipment. and so healthcare institutions found themselves very much in the same position as, as regular grocery uh, shoppers. They they wanted to buy large quantities, like everyone running to the store for the toilet paper. That's that's what they d- did for just for the medical supplies. And um, yeah, obviously uh, when there's a shortage, that's, that's an issue. Um, and so as a result of this, some of this PPE, um, we started to produce that here in the US. Um, Uh, It's just the demand is big and uh, we we weren't ready for it, it came as a surprise, um, so factories are not uh, expected to be able to meet the demand until the middle of 2021. As a result, uh, we have shortages of supplies ranging from face masks to specialized beds to disposable isolation gowns, face shields, thermometers, respirators, um, etc. Uh, and also there are issues even for non-medical grade uh, uh, personal protection. Uh, there are now 7 billion people on Earth that need multiple face masks for use every day. And we may use several masks uh, each day, so it's, it's a lot of people in need for a lot of masks and other PPE. Yeah um so this leads me to the next question um Jenny, i was wondering if maybe you could share uh, a little bit on what the impacts are for uh for the supply chain it it must be huge
2: yeah i mean of course ppe has arguably become the most sought after commodity in the world with a we'll quote from the from that uh, guardian article um you know on the positive side you know this shift you know into ppe has protected and created jobs you know PPE. Uh, PP production means reemploying at least some of the hundreds of thousands of workers who suddenly found themselves at factories with no buyers. Um, but on the other hand, you know there is increasing pressure to keep up with that spike in that orders, and 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 it's you know likely that a, a number of factories are running into more sweatshop conditions and employing some abusive practices to kind of keep those um, everything running. You know, laws and regulations, you know, they have been kind of relaxed or even maybe overlooked by local regulators. There was actually an example in India, which was discussed in the last podcast, that some of the state laws had suspended existing legislation, you know, making it you know, possible for factories to start using some forced labor or extending the workday, you know, from like, it's like 8 to 12 hours, which is a lot for workers. So this is, you know, especially prevalent in the apparel industry, which has seen a huge drop in demand for their traditional apparel, all the shops closed and no one's buying, you know, anything anymore. So some brands, you know, have proactively switched their purchases to PPE equipment, but for the most part, you know, Asian manufacturers, you know, they simply just took their own initiatives and converted their production to PPE amidst a sea of kind of idle machines and workers.
1: Yeah, if you look at the PPE uh, globally, it, it really shows some interesting um, trends. Um, so if you look at, uh, at China, they were the largest PPE exporter before the pandemic, uh, providing almost half of the world supply of face masks, protective gowns, gloves and goggles in 2018. Um, but then uh, the Chinese PPE exports exploded um, really as, as the virus spread further west um, and another country, if you look at Sri Lanka, um, they have secured at least 500 million in orders during the crisis uh, with Mass Holdings, uh, South Asia's uh, largest manufacturer of lingerie, and um, even advertised a move into PPE production using its trademark slogan, Changes Courage. Um, and uh, India is now also uh, coming into the mix. They uh, are at the moment the second largest PPE producer after China, uh, but they only started making this equipment earlier in the year. Um, in in May, India was manufacturing 450,000 PPE suits a day um, and they're aiming to hit 2 million by the end of June. Um, so to to start with, they just kept uh, this production for, for the domestic markets. Um, but the government has announced that they will allow export of the um, of five million PPE suits uh, a month. Uh, yeah, very soon. Um, so it's uh, yeah a, a lot going on. <laughs> yeah,
2: those are some staggering numbers for for production. Um, you know, especially you know just you know in such a short span of time. I mean, like, like here in the U.S., um, there was an NBC local news um, uh, investigation in Los Angeles around the garment industry there, that's where a lot of the local U.S. manufacturing is. And, of course, similar to the meatpacking plants we talked about before, these are kind of large employ- uh, employers with a lot of workers kind of are spending long shifts together in close proximity. And uh, back in March, the Los Angeles mayor launched a program called LA Protects, which in- Uh, invited those garment factories to manufacture PPE for companies and organizations for the city and more than 400 signed up, which means they were classified as essential businesses and could remain open and running. Otherwise they had to close down. But that investigation reported that a lot of the workers were not even provided PPE themselves. Of course, a lot of these are from um, Latino communities. They're often undocumented and, and afraid to speak out. So they had uh, the, the news report, you know, had it said there was around 375 positive cases among a little over 2000 um, employees at a, at a apparel factory in LA and it was closed down. Um, and, but this manufacturer, as part of the article, they did say we did mandate face masks, we did the social distancing, we did the health checks, but they were just simply unable to stop an outbreak. And, you know, they claim it's it's. It's also kind of a reflection of, a, of the systemic issue within the vulnerable Latino community as a whole. Their positivity rate of 17% was similar to what a local healthcare clinic was experiencing. So, uh, you know, it was a very interesting read and, and I do recommend it. And, and I liked how that article kind of provided both sides of the story. So the LA Public Health is getting a lot, you know, two to 3,000 complaints per week, uh, not just about the garment sector, but about the wholesale and warehouses and, and packing plants and things like that. So we are seeing, you know, other industries beyond apparel, with the, you know, with the Lowell production, they're taking up PPE equipment. There was an electrical vehicle manufacturer, BYD, and they secured a $360 million contract to supply 420 million face masks to California. So that was a big uh, one for them. And and for these manufacturers that are not traditionally producing PPE goods, it's a struggle to equip and train workers to properly secure their safety and and hit those daily quotas without crossing the line into forced labor or excessive hours. So for companies who are buying these products um, in bulk, you know, either for their own employees or to sell to consumers, this is a real concern. So as, as an account manager, what kind of like questions and concerns are you hearing from your customers?
1: Yeah, good question. Well, I can tell you it leads to a lot of stress. <laughs> a lot of stress for compliance officers, yeah. yeah. Um, they are uh, working with uh, a segment of suppliers that they've never done business before. Um, at the moment due to COVID They're it's just really hard to verify working conditions. Uh, there are a lot of travel restrictions uh, over the world, uh, which makes it not easy to just visit them and go see how things are going on. Um, and then we discussed about some prevention measures. Uh, you mentioned InterTex, uh, ProTex, Check for manufacturing, um, but they are mostly used for uh, companies' own sites. And um, yeah, is it realistic to put these same expectations uh, on suppliers who are struggling for survival? Uh, but at the same time, access to safe work environments—it is a basic human right. Uh, and um, access, excessive working hours and, or workplace restrictions, um, this could be seen as forced labor, just—it's um, just not not acceptable.
2: Yeah, it's very difficult for you know to audit these suppliers. You know, even for our intertech auditors, you know, we have stay-at-home orders, or, or you know, just be able to travel—you know—from town to town is restricted in a lot of countries. Um, the fact that national legislation on these things is like a you know it's like a shifting sands at the moment so um, you know for steps we're doing is whenever we, our auditors are able to be at a factory and evaluating just for your standard social compliance audit you know we are reviewing and looking at COVID measures and comparing them to the laws and the regulations and we are reporting those concerns inside uh, um, all of our social compliance audits and then when it's not physically possible to go to the factory we do ha- are able to take advantage of our mobile audit technology, which we call EnView, and allows us to conduct a virtual assessment of the site via kind of screen sharing and video conferencing. You know, so we get into some really interesting debates with the customers, you know, as they grapple with the limitations of a virtual audit, you know, especially as it relates to working conditions. Um, but at the same time, as this pandemic continues, you know, at what point can you no longer go into those factories and do some pulse checks? So, you know, this definitely puts our customers in a pickle for which unfortunately there's just no kind of straightforward and easy answer. So, all right, let's transition to uh, one last article about how we as consumers can do a little bit more to think about where our products come from and how this pandemic has highlighted how murky supply chains are as one article and the newsletter, uh, newsletter described when discussing the food supply chain. I'm referring to the article of, uh, it's called from supply professional which talks about supply chain you know how supply chain innovations have sped along by the current pandemic can reduce um food shortages in the future so um, what were some some of those technology highlights astrid
1: yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting article. Uh, I agree with you, and definitely worth looking a bit closer at. Um, so, as you said, like uh, they see that uh, food supply chains are very, very murky. So not, not very transparent. Um, and uh, they think that maybe, uh, as you said, modern technology could help with some of these uh, transparency issues. Um, so in many cases, they actually believe uh, the, the solutions are already there. Existing technology can help. Uh, as For the last few years, we've been talking about solutions like blockchain or chemical footprinting. Uh, and um, they even consider an option, uh, such as drones, um, to use t- um, to help with some of these transparency issues. They uh, this that uh, at the moment, these tools, they are becoming cheaper, but they're also becoming more reliable, uh, which is uh, which is great news that they, they are already being used uh, in supply chain auditing and eco labeling, um, but not to the extent that this article says we, we should see it to help with some of these transparency issues. Um, to give an example, uh, there is the Marine Stewardship Council um, that provides fishery and seafood traceability uh, certification programmes, um, and this programme uses really state-of-the-art DNA testing uh, to ensure the traceability of certified seafood, um, which uh, yeah, which results uh, in it, that uh, the the labelling is actually uh, pretty accurate um, and uh, much yeah much more accurate than we may have seen in the past. Um, and even though this D- DNA testing uh, may not apply to all foods, um, they just really feel that it's uh, it's, it's not used enough. Um, and um, they also see a future for um, technology-enhanced auditing. Um, and uh, utilizing technologies such as sensors, satellite imaging and, and cloud computing to improve visibility deep into the supply chains and, and just to, not to just rely on, on people visiting on site and uh, adding this technology factor to it. And um, even they talk about introducing real time supplier monitoring or to um, to provide early warnings of potential problems uh, you can see right away. Is there an issue with the working conditions? Is there an issue with the inventory shortages uh, or any other? Production breakdowns uh, by just looking at it real time. You know, it's straight away, and and, and not uh, when the next audit comes along. Um, So they also see, uh, yeah, this as a great, um, yeah, uh, for in the future. Um, And uh, they do want to make clear that uh, obviously introducing these technologies uh, will not eliminate the possibility of future shortages, um, but they can definitely make supply chains less likely to break or make them more resilient.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, I definitely recommend that article. That was from supply professional. So, okay, so while the pandemic, you know, is and has been an extremely challenging for the far majority of us, the impact on the supply chain has been huge, you know, and just kind of wrap up, you know, we think that, you know, that this is going to bring some positive change um, as well as changes, you know, that were kind of potentially long kind of overdue. So I think that's it from our side.
0: Great, great. Uh, Thank you, Jenna. Thank you, Astrid. Um, And thank you for listening to another episode of Assurance in Action. Um, If you would like to learn more about the topics covered today, feel free to check out our website, intertech.com. Also, I will be including some links in the description of this podcast. Uh, Give us a follow, a review, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, and we are on social media. So uh, look out for us. We're uh, business assurance, uh, intertech business assurance on LinkedIn uh, and on Twitter. So Uh, Thanks again and have a good rest of your day.